All right, we're in the imprecatory psalm still in our study. And as I was studying for this one, Psalm 83 is where we're going to be. Um, I don't think I've ever preached a message out of Psalm 83 in all these years of ministry and, and going through the Bible and doing that. But it's not a psalm that I have really ever parked myself on much more than just reading through it. And I was blessed to have studied it a little bit this week. And I was looking at it, and uh, it's, it's one of those psalms that uh, it doesn't lend itself really necessarily to a verse that draws itself out. It's, it's a psalm of Asaph, and it's a prayer against the enemies of Israel, and it's a, a prayer to frustrate the enemy. And it's not something that we normally would t- turn to, I guess, just by you know, poking through different passages and whatnot. But it's filled with all kinds of good thoughts and good, uh, good references that are found here. And I want to read down, we might not get through the whole psalm tonight, but I'm going to read down at least through the first eight verses, and we're going to look at it. Psalm 83, and in verse 1, it says, Do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, uh, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, and Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. We'll stop right there and go back to this. The psalmist here, Asaph, and by the way, uh, we were last time in the songs of Asaph. And remember, he was a contemporary with David and one of most likely David's assistants. And so many of the psalms are attributed to Asaph. Um, and in Psalm, I think it's what, 73, all the way up to Psalm maybe 85 is a song of Asaph. And, or maybe it's this song. Um, yeah, because the rest of the, yeah, it's up to Psalm 83. And so there's a number of them. And this one is another one of those imprecatory ones, which means to really call for judgment or to call a curse, literally. And that isn't exactly like the way we should be thinking of it as far as we pray against an enemy, let's say, and pray that God would judge. Um, It's not like we're casting a curse. That's often how people think of it. But the word imprecatory means that. And it simply means, or an imprecation, and it means to call for judgment. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. And again, we don't know the exact backdrop of this, other than it was another one of those times when the enemies of Israel had gathered around it. And in that time, uh, they, were, they were gathering to wipe Israel off the map. And by the way, I would say that that is very much current to today, because if matter of fact, if you're in a, a school in the Palestinian territories, which are not recognized as the state of Israel, even though Israel lays claim to that through Abraham. Um, If you were in a school in there and you looked at a world map, you will not find the country Israel on that map. You will see uh, Philistia or the Palestinians' territory, Palestina. And that has been that way since, well, 
um, the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. In the sacking of Jerusalem, uh, the Romans even wiped the name Judea, which was the ancient name for that southern part of the nation of Israel, and they wiped it off the map, and they instead put Palestina. And it has remained that way. And in 1948, when Israel became a nation again, was recognized by the, most of the nations of the world, the nations directly surrounding it did not, mostly the Arab nations. And they lay claim to that land also. And I don't think it's a correct claim because the Bible has the title deed for that land and God's promise to the Jew that this was his and a conquest that took place and uh, a record of those victories and all of that. And they would today try to wipe Israel right off the map and any notion of it. And again, if you can sort of erase history or the knowledge of history, you can teach people a lie, can't you? And many people have embraced that, including in our country, in a very dangerous thing, because I do believe the Abrahamic covenant, which promised to bless those that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And, you know, that is still today. I do believe that the nations that have recognized Israel and have blessed the Jew, they have indeed been blessed in return um, in many ways. And I I just say that in... in, uh, more or less setting this up for this but you come to this verse one it says do not keep silent O god have you ever had those times in your life where it appears god just is silent you don't really feel like he's really working in your life you know uh there are if we're honest with ourselves probably all of us have had times like that where we just feel like man I, i don't know if the lord is really here with me anymore and uh i would just say don't let your feelings drive you god is anything but silent he's given us his word his word is recorded for us and if it be silent it is because we're not reading it we're not hearing it we're not uh, internalizing it god is not silent at all but the psalmist begins with that do not keep silent oh god no doubt he felt the silence of god that there wasn't a prophet there prophesying at the moment there was that voice of god not with the nation and then where had that voice gone and he goes and directs it of course to the right place he calls out to god and god's a big god he can take our doubts he can take our sometimes our bad theology when he says do not keep silent god wasn't being silent elsewhere in the psalms it says remember the heavens declare the glory of god and the firmament shows his handiwork right and there isn't a place, right? Look at Psalm 18. Go back to that psalm. Psalm 18. I love this. And I'm just kind of thinking about this now. But Psalm 18. Look what it says. Or Psalm 19. Excuse me. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Look what it says. Day unto day utters speech. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So long as the stars are visible in the heavens, the speech of God goes forth. God is not silent. He screams his revelation from even creation itself. And I'll tell you, the psalmist didn't quite understand it, but that's the way he was feeling. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. And it's as if as he sees the enemies gathered around Israel, he's saying, God, you're just not there. Where are you? 
And again, if we're honest with ourselves, probably all of us have felt that way at one time or another. And yet, we sometimes do so amiss. David, in Psalm 28, says this, verse 1, To you I will cry. Asaph did that also. O Lord, my rock, do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. By the way, that's true. If God was silent, if he never uttered a word or had never uttered a word or given revelation to us, we'd all be headed to the pit, to the grave, to hell. But God, right, intervened. But God spoke. And he spoke the worlds into existence and he spoke the gospel as well, didn't he? How to be redeemed to him. I think of that as Christ was being led off to the crucifixion. According to Isaiah 53, and that's prophetic, but also to the historical gospel record, Christ didn't open his mouth. Very few things said around on the crucifixion of Christ. And as he was being led to the cross, he was like a, a, a sheep, is dumb before its shearers. In other words, doesn't speak. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And listen, if he had never reopened his mouth, if he had remained silent, we wouldn't have the knowledge of the resurrected Christ. We wouldn't have Jesus meeting his disciples in saying, rejoice. That's what he says. Be glad. And today we can be glad because God is not silent. And I'm thankful for that. He goes on to say, the psalmist in Psalm 83, he says, For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. And the word uh, for tumult, it means that it's the same word used to describe the roar that the ocean makes. Uh, If you've ever been uh, near an ocean and uh, particularly day where there's a lot of wave action or whatever, you can hear that roar. And it sometimes is deafening if you're near enough. And if you're far away, you can even hear it. It it just, it roars. And he says, that's like the enemies. They roar. They make a tumult. These are the ones that hate God. Isaiah 57 says this of the wicked. It says, but the wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest. Isn't that the way evil is? Isn't that the way wickedness is? It doesn't rest. It never takes a break. Because you don't find rest in sin. You don't. But there is a place of rest for the people of God. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ, isn't it? (laughs) Read the book of Hebrews. He's our high priest who sat down at the right hand of God. He took a place of rest. His ministry is done. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. And by the way, the sea is always moving up and down, to and fro. The sea is really never calm. Even when there's no wind, there's still wave action because it's coming from somewhere. And the troubles of this earth are just the same way. The psalmist felt that way. He felt that his enemies were making a tumult. And those who hated him have lifted up their head the, the word to lift up, or the phrase to lift up their head, means to lift up in pride. 
You picture it as they march around with their chest out and their heads up, proud as a peacock in their evil deeds. Sounds like some people I know that show up on the news all the time, you know. And there are some of our leaders. Sometimes they're, 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 they're people that um, you, couldn't, you could never humble them, you know, with anything. They, they don't even take shame in their actions. Very proud. They lift up their head. Don't be like that. Be humble, right? Verse 3, he says, They have taken crafty counsel against your people. First time we ever see crafty counsel against the Lord's people is in the garden, don't we? Genesis chapter 3. And you have Satan comes along. He was more crafty than any other created being. Any, any part of God's creation. He was more subtle. That's what the Bible says. It means crafty. And he was the one who would come and he'd twist the word of God. And he'd entice them. And they were drawn to sin. If you want to know what Satan or his fingerprints are, they're found all over people that are doing that. Taking their, they're consulting together against the sheltered ones or your sheltered ones, the psalmist says. And he's referring to, the, to believers. Those that are counsel or excuse me are consulted together, they're taking counsel against the sheltered ones, the sheltered ones being believers. And the word uh, consulted means a covenant. People have actually covenanted with each other to do evil acts. And if you don't believe that, look at world history, right? How many times people aligned with other nations or something or other rulers, to come up even against the Jew, time and time again. Let I me mean, think of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh would be the first instance of that, where you see a Pharaoh plotting to kill all the male children in Egypt, the Jewish male children. He wanted to stop that. And yet, God was going to have his way, wasn't he? Psalm 27, by the way, in verse 5, says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And David recognized that there is a place of shelter. And yet it doesn't stop evil from plotting against that. Verse 4 says, They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. And I already commented on that, that there are many that would like to have that name Israel right off the, the map. Um, and some places they actually do. And they're lining up to do that. And they're not alone because world history again shows us that time and time again people did that. Most, uh, well, you, you think about in the 20th century, Adolf Hitler. He wanted to destroy every last Jew and Adolf Eichmann, his uh, his uh, cohort that had the final solution, right? He also um, wanted to destroy the Jew, and that's what they they designed a systematic way of rounding them up, putting them in concentration camps, and then going and bringing them to the gas chambers, and then cremating their bodies, and all of that. Six million Jews killed in the days of just prior to World War II into throughout World War II. Till they were those camps were liberated. You just have to shake your head. Why would they do that? Because 
Satan would like to destroy the Jew. Because in the Jew is a promise that God has, a covenant with the Jew. And really with the whole earth, not just the Jew. Because out of the Jew would come Messiah, and out of the Jew, Jewish line, the Messiah has come. I don't promise to know the mind of Satan, but I think he has every intention to try to stop the plans of God. He won't. He can't. God will never allow it. But yet, he will try. How about going back to the time of Esther? In Esther chapter 3, we read of Mordecai, and we read of Haman. And Haman hated Mordecai, but not Mordecai only. He hated all of Mordecai's people. Look what it says. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And the people, or the people of Mordecai. And that's what his, his heart was bent to do. He wanted to round them all up. Women, children, babies, old people. Not just Mordecai. And kill them all. Isn't that awful? The psalmist cries out for vengeance on such people. By the way, Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah also prayed and prophesied, I guess you'd say as well, um, imprecatory prayers. In the book of Jeremiah, in uh, chapter 11, He talks about this, about his own, those, and these were of his own country, some of them, uh, that sought to kill Jeremiah because he was a true prophet. And they were more concerned about going out and worshiping Baal, and Jeremiah was in their way. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy, go back here, let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have revealed my cause. What does Jeremiah ask for? He says, Lord, let me see your vengeance. That doesn't sound like a very nice thing to say, right? But you know what? It was what the Lord put in his heart. He was obviously, and you read the message of Jeremiah, it was one of repentance. And by the way, God wants everybody everywhere to repent. But not everybody will repent. And when people have done great evil things against God's people, it's not improper to call and say, God, if they will not repent, then let me see your vengeance. Doesn't mean I take vengeance. It means leave it to him to do that. He is the avenger of all things. By the way, that's the, the cry of the martyrs in the book of Revelation. When they cry out and their blood cries out, it says, and they want vengeance. Those are those that will be the tribulation saints that die during that time, a martyr's death. Go back to Psalm 83, verse 5. He says, For they have consulted together with one consent, and they form a confederacy against you. Consulted together, that's that word con- uh, uh, covenanted. They actually 
sign a treaty together, and they form a confederacy. That's a a group of persons or um, states, countries, others that would form an alliance together to for some cause, a confederacy. They come together for that. In this case, it's the coming together to do great and wicked, evil things. And he goes on to describe who was doing this. He says, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, and Gebal and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia were the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. You have here a number of things mentioned. Um, what you're dealing with here is the, the regions that actually, they're the lands that were occupied by those people from those descendants that were around Israel. Uh, those ancient lands are still there, and some of those ancient peoples are still there, by the way. They're, they're now not the same people, obviously, but the, their roots are. Uh, the Ishmaelites. Where did Ishmael come from? Who was Ishmael? What's that? Yeah, he was. He was a product of the flesh, anyways. You know, he was a product. Remember Abraham and uh, Hagar, right? And you had you had that product of the flesh. And did Ishmael bring peace to? His brother after that, Isaac, right? No. Later on, down the line it goes, Ishmaelites. You have uh, others mentioned there, Ammon and Moab. They're mentioned. And, of course, Ammon and Moab were the two sons of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. And they brought heartache to the descendants of, well, of Abraham after that. And again, sin has consequences. It always does. And again, the wonderful story of Ruth is that a Moabite woman became grafted into the nation of Israel by the grace of God. And I just say this, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And I'm thankful for that because I should have been left out of any blessing of Israel and out of the promises of God and not had any place with the Messiah but I do have a place because he's gracious and he forgives. Oh, we're thankful. Well, let's move on. If you wanted a little outline, verses 1 to 8 is uh, the psalmist saying, Lord, see what is happening. <laughs> All right? I took that from Warren Wiersbe again. Uh, but see what is happening. That's what we just read. And sometimes we feel it necessary to point out to God what is happening. And I, I just say that that's not wrong. It's a call to arms, and it's a call to be vigilant. And really, we're seeing that. You know, we see that when wickedness begins to envelop us, we shouldn't just stick our head in the sand. We should go to God, and we should say, Lord, don't you see what's happening? And the answer from heaven is, yes, I see, and I know. He goes on to Pray this, in a sense, Lord, do what is necessary. That's sort of the imprecatory part. He goes on, he says, Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon. 
And you read of those names, and to the Jew, of course, it would have immediately brought to memory the accounts that would have gone on in the time of Moses with the Midianites, and also later in the time of the judges. And we read of the Midianites, they, they appear in, well, Judges 4 and then Judges 7. Um, in Judges 7, it's the story of Gideon. And he's hiding from the Midianites because they're so numerous and they have come and taken, they've raided the towns and there's Gideon. And God raises up a Gideon. And he raises up a small group of faithful men that go out and they're going to do it by God's way. And the Midianites fled. They ultimately were, many of them killed. Judges 7, verse 22 is the account of that. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his company throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia, toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Maholah, by Tabath. About Judges 4, you back up, that was, that was Midian, by the way. Back up to Judges 4, and you read the account of Sisera. Sisera, <coughs> evil man, in the time of Barak, right? The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. The bad guy's getting away. You know, it seems like that happens, right? The bad guy gets away. But does he really get away? No. God will have his way. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth and Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left except Sisera. Sisera ran away. He was a coward. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was a peace between Jabin, king of Hazar, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk. There it is. I'm going to give you a little warm milk, a little blankie, put you to bed. And covered him, it says. She, and gave him drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there a man here, you shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. Not the way you want to go out of this world. But he, he died a coward's death. He died the death of a man who would not repent, who raised himself and his army up against God's anointed. And God had the last say, and he used it by the hand of a woman and a tent peg. And he was dead. <laughs> Think about that. Asaph says, let your enemies be like Sisera. Nail them to the ground, Lord. Wow, that's hard. That's what he says. Verse 10, Psalm 83, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. 
He reminds the, the enemies of God that that's their end. That God will have the last say and that blood that is poured out will be blood that will be considered just refuse. Their carcasses laid out there in the wilderness. By the way, that is also the end of really in the book of uh, Revelation uh, the battle of Armageddon, a series of battles that takes place and the culmination of that in the valley of Megiddo, it'll be such that Remember, the blood will flow up to the horse's bridle. And you know what? That blood isn't precious blood in the sense of that way. It's precious in that life was there at one time, but it was unrepentant man. And in doing so, his blood will be spilled, and the birds of the air will come and feed on the carcasses. There won't be anybody there to honor the dead. There won't be any parades. There won't be any of those. It will be a slaughter of those that raise themselves against God. Even though they had space to repent. It's not real pretty, that picture. Zephaniah. This is prophetic of that time, by the way. Zephaniah chapter 1. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Ah, you know, when you're in your sin, you're blind. I was there. Lived in sin 18 years of my life, and I was spiritually blind. And that's why the further we go into sin, the blinder we become, really. People walk around thinking they're enlightened, but they're really blind, and they're stumbling in the darkness. Someday, if they don't repent, don't turn to the Lord and ask forgiveness, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of them all, it says, of all those who dwell in the land. And in that day, you know what? All your silver and gold won't, won't get there. Tell you, there's a gospel message in that verse 18 of Zephaniah 1. (laughs) Your silver and gold won't save you. Your works won't save you. The only thing that will save you from the wrath of God is the one who already bore the wrath of God. He He bore the wrath of God at the cross. When God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, God the Son... He endured the cross, the suffering, the shame, and the punishment of God for us. Because I deserve that, what this says here. And you know, if we didn't turn to Christ and come to Him who has been judged for us, then you know what? Someday He'll make speedy riddance of us all. Cast us away from his presence for eternity in hell. Psalm 83.11 Make the nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. And yes all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. Who said let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for our possession. Isn't that interesting that there are people. And it's always been that way. They look like for instance in this case at Israel. And they see a land 
that has a lot of resources. And by the way, Israel does have a lot of resources. It's, it's, chances are you go down here to the grocery store and there's agricultural products that are there from Israel because uh, they export goods to the whole world because of the agricultural uh, fertile land that's there and the ingenuity, our technology, most likely the technology that's driving this iPad right here. Some of that was developed in Israel. They have minerals. Some have said it's up to maybe one-third of the earth's minerals that could be mined are found in the Dead Sea alone. It's a land that people want, but it's not my land, per se. It's not your land. It's not the Palestinians' land. It's the land of Israel, the land of the Jew. And for those who say, let's take for ourselves the pastures of God for possession, I will just say this, that you have to, you have to fight God to do that. The very fact that Israel is on the map and the Jewish people are there is a promise that, or again, proof that God keeps his promise. And the principle is the same for all of us. Don't rob God. Don't rob him of your, not only your wealth, but your gifts, your time. You know, I, and I'm speaking to myself because I can look at my day and sometimes say, wow, Lord, I didn't really do much for you today. Robbed you of that. Spent too much time watching something on TV or I've done this, you know, instead of doing that and that I should have done. And, you know, I look back and we, we see that. That's, you can't change that if you've done that. But like I can say this, we can change what we do tomorrow, what we do tonight, how we act. And I would just say this, be reminded, don't rob God. That's a New Testament principle too. Acts chapter 5, and I won't have you turn there, but you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They kept back a portion of land that they had, that God had, had put on their heart to give and to sell and to use the proceeds to help others. And they, they wanted to have a show of giving, but then they kept back a portion of it. And one after the other died and dropped right there and people carried them out. Peter says, you've not lied unto men, but unto God. And when people go after what's God's, beware. That's all I say. Beware. And I say, beware. I point that finger right at myself. I'm thankful he's a gracious God. Psalm 83, verse 12. Who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for possession? And he says, oh, my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. Boy, that's harsh imagery, isn't it? Sweep them away, Lord, in the fiery whirlwind. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Then the last two verses, or three verses here of this psalm, is uh, the prayer, really, Lord, glorify your name. See, there's a reason why the justice of God is called for in the vengeance of God. It is not simply to avenge. I mean, there's lots of people out there right now trying to avenge a wrong. And sometimes that's a cycle of vengeance that goes on and on and on. But ultimately, the vengeance of God really brings glory to God. And I know that sounds strange, right? 
But you've got to think of it in the sense that if God never judged sin, he wouldn't be a very good God, would he? But when he does judge sin, and ultimately he will, it brings glory to him. Psalm 83, verse 16, fill their faces with shame. That's not pretty. Think of those that were earlier in the psalm. He says they lift up their head. They're proud and all that. And someday, if they don't repent and turn to the Lord, listen, their faces will be filled with shame. And at the great white judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the book of Revelation, you read of that, chapter 19, and then into chapter 20, you read of that, and you know what? You find there is no, really, it's just a pronouncement of judgment, and I can only imagine the shame on that day for those who are the rejectors of the only one who could save them. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Wow. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. That they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And you know, ultimately, that's what God wants. He wants people everywhere to know that he is the most high God. He's not an angry God that's looking to judge. Matter of fact, the Bible says he's slow to anger, doesn't it? Slow to anger. But he's not slack concerning his promises at all. Peter says that, doesn't he? But he is slow to anger in that this, he gives man space to repent. Generation after generation after generation. And yes, there'll be mockers and scoffers that'll come and say, where is the promise of his coming? I just say this, that you better be careful because he is coming. And someday it will be the last day for them to repent. And they will, if they do not, their destiny is to be cast away forever. That they may know that you whose name alone is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. You know, the, probably the, the story that fits that the most from the Bible, and I think it's one of the most marvelous conversions that ever took place in human history, is the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. You read of it in Daniel chapter 4. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he doesn't understand it, and Daniel interprets it, and Nebuchadnezzar, who has made himself God, essentially, and that's what the Babylonians, they worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar and him, and Daniel warns him, or warns, really, God warned him, and Daniel interpreted it. <clears throat> and what Daniel interprets comes to pass. And it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? You can see him, his head's lifted up, chest puffed out. Walking around, look at my wonderful kingdom. Proud as a peacock. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Can you imagine what he would have heard and the fear that would have risen in his heart? And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. 
that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, look at it goes now personal. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. You know, the only, finally, Nebuchadnezzar got it right. And he realized there was someone higher than him, the Most High God. And listen, if a Nebuchadnezzar can repent and be saved, I think anybody can. And that just shows how great God is. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. And this psalm just reminds us, Lord, of uh, really a a warning for those who are against you. And Lord, many of us here, all of us, Lord, as we at one time were against you in our sin. And Lord, in your grace and mercy, you came to us and rescued us. Lord, I pray that many more in our world would find that saving grace. Turn to you. Lord, convict them of their sin. Illuminate their hearts and minds. And Lord, if there's, I think of some of the world leaders that often we complain about. But Lord, I pray that some would be converted. And we leave that with you, O Lord. God most high. In Jesus' name, amen.